Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to this special two-year anniversary podcast episode. On this week's episode of the podcast, we talk about the news that the Nothing Phone 1 will not be coming to North America. We're talking about M2 MacBook Pro reviews. Not so pro, after all. And we talk about our favorite tech stories of the past year. All right, on to topic number one. Headline news, nothing phone one is not coming to North America. Now, back it up a little bit. On the last podcast, I had it in my notes. I forgot to mention the phone would be going on pre-order or the phone currently is on pre-order at StockX. They actually announced it before our last podcast, meant to mention it, forgot about it. So if anyone, I guess, I don't know, wanted to bid on a unreleased phone, sorry for not letting you know sooner. But yeah, the phone went up for pre-order and on the pre-order site, there was a little bit of a disclaimer saying, hey, if you're someone in North America that's planning to bid for this phone, to buy this phone, it might not work for your carrier. Nothing said they're focusing on their home markets of the UK and of Europe. And, you know, this is due to strong partnerships that they have with the local carriers out there. Kind of what they said is someone saw the disclaimer, they reached out to nothing and they confirmed that, yeah, we won't be launching initially in North America, but there's going to be a limited number of private community investors in the US that will be able to get their hands on the phone one in a, what they're calling the closed beta program. And, you know, immediately coming to mind are people like Casey Neistat, who's, you know, big YouTube sensation, big filmmaker who is invested in the ground level with nothing before they even launched the Air One. And some people have kind of done a little bit of research and they found that if you manage to get the nothing phone one into the United States, if you get your hands on one, it will work in a limited capacity on T-Mobile's network you can use it with AT&T, but it's, it's going to lack the voice over LTE. And if you're on Verizon, not going to work at all. So like I said, there's going to be a few limited uh, closed beta people who have their hands on it, like Casey Neistat, also like MKBHD. He actually, I guess a week ago, he came out with a video and he had an official unboxing of the Phone 1. He got his hands, they sent him one. Uh, he took it out of the box and he kind of powered it on and he was only allowed to show the glyph interface. So we talked a bit about this before, but on the back of the phone, they have these lights in this sort of hieroglyph fashion that outline the charging coil, the camera on the top left. And uh, it's a pretty interesting design and seeing it actually light up in person, it's pretty eye catching because no other phone has that, you know, it's very unique in that way. And one interesting thing that I thought was pretty cool that they showed off, depending on the ringer that you have, and this is dependent on the stock ringer, I'm not sure if it will do with, you know, custom ringers or songs that you decide to use as your ringer, but depending on the ringer that you choose, the lights will flash on the back to mimic the pattern of the ringer. So without even hearing the phone, if you have your phone on silent and you just look at how the light pattern is, you can tell what ringer should be playing. And if you have different ringers for different people, you can tell who's calling you based off of the light pattern, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, underneath the charging coil light, there's another light at the bottom that goes in line with the USB charger. 
And they're actually using that as a progress bar. So if you're charging your phone and it's face down, you can tap your phone and kind of shake your phone. And the little bar on the bottom will fill up depending on how much charge is in your battery, which is another pretty cool feature. Another thing about the lights that they're saying is, you know, if you're in a dark room and you're trying to take a picture of something or someone, you're going to have a bright flash. And it's a very jarred experience, I guess. Um, and it's it's a little bit distorted. It can be a bit overexposed at times. So the lights on the back being the big circle and the ones around the camera and some of the ones on the edges, they'll actually operate more like fill lights. So as opposed to this bright, harsh flash, it's going to be uh, more diffuse, a little bit more spread out, more even lighting for your subject, which is definitely something that I think is going to be, you know, it's going to be cool to see what kind of dark photography they can do. I wouldn't say necessarily nighttime outside. I, I don't think the lights are that bright. I don't think it's going to be that beneficial, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of pictures you can produce with this as opposed to others. Another interesting thing that's come out, I find interesting at least, is there's been some pre-release Geekbench scores that have come out. And it turns out that this phone won't have the most powerful CPU. It's going to be powered by a mid-range Snapdragon as opposed to the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, which everyone kind of originally thought. So it's not going to compete. And this is just, you know, just straight up raw specs wise with the, you know, the, the Samsung S22 Ultras with the, you know, OnePlus, what are they, 10 Pro now. It's not going to compete spec for spec with those. So it seems like what their marketing is going to be around is more of the experience with the phone, the aesthetics of the phone, the design of the phone, and maybe even, I'm sure, in a large part, the design of the software. Now, all of that kind of summed up together. Like I said, they were up for bid. They were up for purchase on StockX. And there's 100 phones available on StockX. I'm not sure how many they sold through already. or But if you placed a bid, if you were one of the top 100 bids, you were guaranteed a phone. And the phones are actually designated from 1 to 100 with laser etching on the side. So the first 100 phones to go out, apart from, I'm sure Casey Neistat has a phone and we know MKBHD has a phone. But the first 100 or the top 100 bids get a phone. There are bids that have reached upwards of $3,000 USD. So this is the first phone from nothing, which I'm sure, you know, is, I'm sure if someone could buy the first iPhone and hold it, you know, by now it would be probably worth more than $3,000. So maybe they're thinking of this as a future investment, but upwards of $3,000. We know it's not going to have the newest, the best chip there is. It's not going to be the fastest phone. And we don't really know anything else about it. We don't know how the, you know, we don't know how the camera is going to operate. We don't know how the operating system is going to be. We don't know how long nothing's going to be around for. But the fact that people are spending upwards of $3,000 for a phone that hasn't even come out yet. And I even saw prices that were up to $4,000. One bid, I think, was like $3,950 or something like that. So I'm surprised <laughs> by how much people are willing to bid, pay for this phone. I guess, what are your thoughts on just the whole nothing phone not coming to North America, the Glyph interface, and people willing to spend $4,000 for a phone that we still don't know that much about? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the 
listing of the phone, the first 100 models on StockX, uh, and getting that really highly inflated kind of bid uh, for a lot of these these phones makes sense for what nothing is trying to do uh, in terms of like the design. Like I, I said from early on, I always felt like nothing was was going more the supreme route and, and trying to build a, a brand, the hype around the brand um, as opposed to the actual product. And I think it's working. I do think that that's too much to spend on a phone, but I think the reason why that is happening is because of the hype and also the ability to get one of these cool numbered versions of the phone. And the phone does look cool. Like the, the glyph, glyphs on the back, I do think is 100% a gimmick. I don't think it's the use uses that they've shown, I don't think are all that useful, uh, but it does look cool. And that's really important, especially when it comes to a phone like this. Uh, one thing about the Glyph interface that I, I would say kind of disappoints me a little is that it's white lights on the uh, the back of a white phone, which I feel like, you know, eventually, hopefully when they make a black version that will look a lot cooler with the with the contrast or you know, if they had done something like a white phone with blue lights or, or a different color, it would have been cooler with contrast. Although I think this gives it a really clean look, despite the fact that it has transparency. And I use transparency in quotes because you can't really see anything. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the glyphs are cool. I think it's not that useful. Uh, as for it not coming to North America or specifically America, I assume that means all of North America. It makes sense. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who are really frustrated by that, considering the fact that there was a lot of hype built up about these phones, and a lot of people really wanted to get their hands on them. But I think two things here come into play that are, are really important. One, and I might be alone on this, but I think this thing looks like an iPhone clone. And the reason why you make a phone look like an iPhone clone is because you want to compete with the iPhone. In America, you don't compete with the iPhone. The iPhone is by far the most important and and profitable and and popular device by a long shot. In Europe and in Asia, that is not the case. There is far more of an interest in Android devices in other markets other than North America than you would see. And because of that, there's a lot more competition. Like, for example, Huawei devices are still sold in Europe, despite the fact that it doesn't even have Google Play on the device. Uh, and there's so many other uh, smartphone manufacturers that are readily available in European countries that we just don't see in North America. And the reason why is because it's just a lot easier to compete in those countries because not everyone's buying an iPhone like they are in, in America. So it makes sense for nothing to say, hey, we are going to make an iPhone-like device, a device that looks very much like an iPhone that has that aesthetic but is running Android in a market where people would eat that up. And that's going to be the Asian market and the European market. In the American market, it's not going to sell all that well. And it will, it'll sell. Don't get me wrong. It will sell, but it won't sell nearly as well as it would in those markets, which is why that's where they're going to start. Not to mention the fact that there is going to be, or we're still in a, a kind of a chip shortage. So it makes sense to sell the devices in the areas that they're going to make the most money. And then eventually, maybe one day, bring out a device that will uh, be in the American market. And specifically when they mentioned this, they talked about a future device might come to North America, kind of similar to what OnePlus did with the Nord line, where mm -hmm. like, yeah, the original Nord, even though there's a lot of excitement about that, that wasn't the device they wanted to release in North America. And they eventually released other devices that weren't all that good, honestly. Uh, 
in North America that wasn't really at the same level as the original Nord, I have a feeling that nothing might do a similar thing where it might not be a phone that looks exactly like an iPhone in North America. They might try to do something different to differentiate uh, because they don't they know they can't compete on that level specifically in America. Uh, so I would expect to see a different phone when it does launch or if they ever do launch a phone in North America that isn't specifically the Nothing Phone 1. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just a smart move. Overall though, I think a lot of people are going to be really disappointed. I think there's a lot of both Carl Pay fans, old school OnePlus fans, and just Android fans in general, even though there's a lot fewer of them in in America, who were really excited about this device and wanted to get their hands on it, despite the fact that even if it didn't have all the the uh, LTE and 4G and 5G bands, I still think that they would have still bought it just because they like the design and they like Android and they want to be a part of this kind of nothing movement, which they won't get the opportunity to at this point. So I can understand the disappointment, but 100%, I do think it's a smart move from nothing. You know, hopefully as this company grows and uh, sells more phones and, and builds a fan base, they could eventually release something in North America. That is also kind of cool. But uh, I'm curious, from your point of view, when you heard this news, were you disappointed at all? Were you surprised at all that this phone wouldn't be coming to North America? And do you think it's a, a mistake on their part? Or do you think it's it's smart for them just to focus on the markets they can make the bigger splash? I would, I would say I'm a little disappointed and a little surprised. Mm -hmm. Especially because, okay, the first hands-on with the phone was MKBHD, who's on american youtuber yeah and i'm sure you know as the as the weeks go on we're going to see more american youtubers big american youtubers that have their hands on the phone so i'm surprised that they're not i guess i'm surprised that it's not going to be supported in north america i'm not sure the technology behind it why it won't be but even if let's say you are focusing on marketing in europe and you know the uk if you still have a phone that can function in the United States, that would make the most sense to me, right? Even they, they didn't explicitly say that they're focusing on Asia either, right? They just said Europe and the UK, which kind of, that's a lot of global customers that you're leaving out. But like I said, I don't know the technology behind it, but to, in my mind, it would make the most sense. Okay, if you want to target these markets, target these markets, but make it so that anyone like you said any of your fans all over the world that want to support you that want to you know be a part of this journey this story that you're creating are able to purchase the phone are able to support your company with their wallets i'm not sure if you know maybe when the phone does come out if you're in america you can still buy it if you're in asia you can still buy it there might be a disclaimer that says hey we noticed that you're, you know, you're outside of the the UK and you're outside of Europe. This phone may not be supported by your network. Maybe that will still be an option. I just, you know, it doesn't make sense to me if they do come out with a phone, if they do launch the phone and you can't even buy it outside of Europe and the UK. That that wouldn't make sense to me, especially if you're trying to compete with the iPhone, if you're trying to, you know, compete with Apple. Yeah, I don't know. And they are so clearly mimicking Apple mm -hmm. or I don't know. They, it looks like, it looks exactly like an iPhone. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't, it makes more sense to me to sell it in a market where the iPhone is so dominant. 
because you know the iPhone isn't as popular in Europe and the UK maybe but then maybe it's not as popular people see the nothing phone and says oh that looks like an iPhone I don't want it I want something that looks like an Android phone it's like oh no this is an Android phone like yeah but it looks like an iPhone I feel like it would be easier to maybe slightly easier to sell somewhere where the iPhone design language is so popular. And that's kind of one of the things, right? Every couple of years, iPhone changes how their phones look. Mm -hmm. And people will see the new design, the new shape of the phone, like, oh, you have the new iPhone. So if you release a phone that looks like the iPhone, I feel like it would be easier to get people interested in it. Like, oh, that looks like the new iPhone. In my mind, that looks like a cool phone. You know, that looks like a popular phone, but like, wait, how'd you get the lights on the back of your iPhone? Like, oh, well, actually, it's not an iPhone. This is a nothing phone. I feel like that would be easier marketing than, uh, you know, somewhere where Samsungs are more popular, where OnePlus might be more popular, where Huawei might be more popular, where typical Android looking phones, you know, with smoother edges, that is the... You know, that's a popular purchase. That's what people are into or more interested in. So, yeah, I, I think it's a very strange decision. I mean, but hey, once again, I don't know the technology behind it. I'm not working for nothing. Maybe they, I'm sure they know more than I do about global marketing strategies. The one thing I will say is I feel like companies have tried this in the past. Like Huawei at one point did try to make iPhone clones uh, and it did, just didn't do well. And I think it's because people don't buy iPhones because of the way they look. They buy iPhones because of the OS. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the reason why the iPhone SE can still exist. And we'll talk about other Apple products that look old, despite the fact that it looks very similar to an iPhone 6 that came out almost a decade ago. So it's it's the it's the ecosystem as to why people buy iPhones and Apple products, specifically in mobile. And that's exactly what nothing is trying to create. They can't really compete with that in North America. Like, for example, over 50% of new phones that are sold are iOS devices. And it's because people want iOS. They want it to work with their, their Apple Watch. They want it to work with their AirPods. Whereas in Europe, it's very different. It's, it's closer to 30%, potentially even less than Samsung shares. So there is much more of an investment in the Android ecosystem in Europe that you can actually switch people into, okay, if we want to make the Android version of, of, of Apple's ecosystem in North America where we can make a phone and also we can make ear pod clones that work specifically with our phone and a watch that works specifically with our phone, it's going to be much harder to convince someone who's using iOS to switch to that than it is someone who's using a Samsung phone to switch to that. And there's just way more people that you can make that argument to in Europe than in North America. And I think that's what they're betting on, specifically with the fact that, like you mentioned, they're probably going to be using a more mid-range chip that probably isn't going to have all the radios and also could mean that if they price this phone pretty expensive, similar to an iPhone or a flagship device, they can get the kind of return on investment that Apple does. We know that Apple makes a lot of money on their phones because they're so expensive. I think that's what nothing wants. They want to be able to sell things at a premium because it has the nothing name attached to it, whether it's a nothing OS, the nothing phone, or the nothing uh, earbuds. 
that's what they want. And I, don't, I just don't think there's room for that in North America. So I, I think when they do eventually launch in North America, it will be a completely different idea. I don't think they're going to be trying to compete with Apple that way, just because I, I think that's kind of a, a losing battle, essentially. But I, I guess my mm-hmm. final question to you about this is, if this is the direction that they that they're deciding to go, you know, they want to be this all-encompassing uh, ecosystem. How much do you think this nothing phone can be? As let's say, for example, you transported yourself into Europe and you're about to get into a brand new ecosystem that's going to compete with Apple. It's not there yet, but let's say it eventually is. Do you think they can charge Apple prices for a phone if they can match that ecosystem? Yes. But that's only once they can match the ecosystem, mm. right? At this point in time, all they have is earbuds. Yeah. They don't have anything else, right? The phone is going to be their second product. If they have the earbuds, if they have the watch, if they have, you know, tablets, laptops, t- you know, TV, uh, Apple or whatever, nothing TV one, you know, if they have all that stuff, and your phone is the controller for everything, okay, maybe then you'll get away with charging Apple prices. But with just with just a phone and earbuds, you can't charge those prices mm-hmm. right now. Like you look at Samsung, they're pretty up there too, but Samsung has watches, they have tablets, they have laptops, they have TVs, they have they have everything. They have washing machines. Not that you need, you know, <laughs> your phone to use your washing machine, but they have everything. Yeah. And they have top of the line specs. So they, you know, they can charge a premium. I think if you're releasing a mid-range phone and your thing is, hey, we are building this ecosystem, great. Come back to me when the ecosystem's built. Because, you know, until then, I'm not going to charge a pre or I'm not going to pay a premium for it. I think I've said before, I want to see something around the prices of the Pixel 6. Mm-hmm. That would make the most sense to me. And especially if you're coming in with a mid-range phone, but it seems like, you know, specs, specs wise, it seems like it's going to be mid-range. Then, yeah, you can't charge a premium for mid-range hardware. One thing, though, that I think is... I mean, it's definitely playing into their favor right now, and I think it's going to continue to play into their favor, is the story that they're creating. Mm-hmm. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned their the series that they come out with, the Nothing series. They came out with episode one. Last week, they came out with episode two. And, I, you know, according to their scheduling, they should come out with the third episode today. Did you get a chance to look at any of the episodes? No, no, not yet. I think they're doing an amazing storytelling job, mm. which is part of what's leading towards the hype. Mm-hmm. Carl Page is an excellent storyteller. I mean, just like in his past with OnePlus and what he's already done with the Nothing brand so far, like we've talked about them so much. Everyone's talking about them and they've only successfully launched earbuds, right? <laughs> so we're still waiting on their phone, but he has so much hype. He has so much, so many people talking about it. And it's not just, you know, the flashy design and the flashy lights on the back. They're showing the story behind building the phone, behind coming up with the phone, behind launching the phone. And we don't see that anywhere else Mm -hmm. from any other company. Now, on this last episode that came out last week, I thought it was pretty cool because they they went into how they get the aluminum for their phones. Now, everyone talks about, you know, 
this much recycled aluminum, 100% recycled aluminum. This is the carbon footprint we're reducing. They actually go on a tour of a factory where they have like, you know, old aluminum from construction sites. They have like an old aluminum tailpipe from a car and they show them putting it into furnaces, melting it down into molten aluminum, pouring that aluminum and then cutting it and making like recycled aluminum that they're going to use for their phones. So I think the fact that, you know, okay, you can have Apple on stage saying, oh yeah, we're using hundred percent recycled aluminum in our enclosures and having OnePlus take you to the factory, show it being melted down, show it being poured, show it being cut. I think that's, you know, a completely different level of investment. Yeah. Right. Even though, you know, I'm sure Apple does the same thing, but they don't show you that. They don't tell you that side of the story. And like I said, they should come out with one today. We're recording on a Wednesday, should come out with one the following Wednesday. I'm assuming they're going to do this until the launch of the phone. I think that's a, I think that's one way that they're building up hype and they're building up interest for this device. And I think that, I don't, I think we're going to see a lot of people start copying them. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on how successful the phone is, it seems like it's going pretty successful. They're selling what should be a mid-range phone for $4,000. So <laughs> I'd say that's pretty successful hype building so far. But yeah, I don't know. I think I would like to see at least more companies do this, showing you, hey, this is the person who designed this aspect of the phone. This is the person who you know, designed the camera enclosure. This is the person who worked on this aspect of the software and then take you into the factory of them making their phones. Yeah. So I don't know. I think... You know, Carl Pay, like I said, master storyteller. And I like this storytelling aspect of the phone as opposed to, you know, from OnePlus. It's, oh, here's a spec, here's a spec, here's a spec. Yeah. Leading up to the phone. And then by the time the phone comes out, it's like, oh, well, we know all the specs already and we know what it looks like. So there's nothing really left to showcase. Yeah. Whereas OnePlus is like, well, no, we're going to tell you the story of the phone. We're going to get you interested in the people behind the phone, the company behind the phone. And then, I mean... Who knows? They could prove me wrong today when they release the next episode. And then we're going to give you, you know, the specs, what the screen resolution is, all this stuff. We're going to give you all that. But until then, we're just going to get you interested in the community around the phone, which I think is a very unique way of marketing, which I think is going to catch on. All right. I would like to see catch on at least. Yeah, I agree. All that spec stuff is less important, really. Yeah. All right. On to our second topic of the day. M2 MacBook Pro reviews are in, and it is indeed faster than the M1 MacBook Pro, but only marginally faster, and most people aren't impressed with it. And when, I, when it came out, when they announced it, I think you know both of us weren't that impressed with it. We were a little bit surprised as to why, why they decided to come out with this product. I've heard one person refer to it, as the MacBook Pro SE edition. It's faster than M2, not close to M1 Pro or M1 Max or M1 Ultra, which I don't think anyone expected it to be. What does it have going for it? It has active cooling, you know, a slightly larger battery than the last model. If you really want the touch bar, it still has a touch bar. Kind of what Apple's, the executives are, well, what the 
people at Apple are saying the reason for this is if you want the new M2 chip and you know you want sustained performance out of it, this MacBook Pro with M2 is a chip for you. What they're saying is, you know, the MacBook Air with M2 when it comes out, because it's not out yet, people haven't gotten uh haven't released reviews for it yet, you're not gonna be able to have sustained performance because it doesn't have active cooling. So you're gonna reach a certain point and then the CPU and everything is going to have to throttle. So if you know you're editing videos for a long period of time, or photos, or you're you know playing video games on a Mac, if you're coding for an extended period of time, this is the device for you. I don't buy it. But what are your thoughts on the reviews of the M2 MacBook Pro? Uh, so honestly, I, I kind of disagree with some of the reviews of the M2 MacBook Pro as from someone who hasn't touched one, so obviously, grain of salt. But uh, the reason is, we don't know if these guys are using the M2 MacBook Air yet. Um, and I, I think this is an important distinction because M2 is a physically larger chip than M1, which means that there's a chance that it's probably less efficient. And in that it's less efficient, it could also possibly be producing more heat. Uh, where I think something like a, a fan and a more robust cooling system might be more uh, important for M2 than maybe it was for the original M1. Now, this is all stuff that is completely speculative. I don't, we, no one knows at this point. Uh, but there are a couple of facts that I think are interesting with this M2 MacBook Pro. And one of them is the fact that it ships with a physically larger, more powerful power brick. Uh, the MacBook Air ships with a 30-watt power brick, whereas the MacBook Pro 13 uh, ships with a 67-watt power brick. Now, that could just be for faster charging, but we've, like we talked about in our, our last episode, spec for spec, if you spec these two devices the same, they are the exact same price. So the fact that they are the same price, but still the 13-inch MacBook Pro is going to ship with a more powerful brick and does have uh, active cooling and Apple's engineers are saying that it's going to perform better for extended workloads leads me to believe that it probably will perform considerably better for extended workloads, which is important because the 14-inch MacBook Pro is so much more expensive than the 13-inch MacBook Pro. So it's kind of a situation where if you do have a workflow with you know, extended uh, renders or anything like that, where you will need the chip to perform for longer periods of time, the 13-inch MacBook Pro might be your only option because you might be priced out of the fact that there's a 14-inch MacBook Pro. So I have seen a lot of reviews saying that, okay, if you were interested in the 13-inch MacBook Pro with M2, just get a MacBook Air, or if the MacBook Air isn't powerful enough for you, get a MacBook Pro. The reason why I can't really agree with that is... The MacBook, MacBook Pro 14 inch. Yes, the MacBook Pro 14 inch. The reason why I can't agree with that is the MacBook Pro 14 inch is seven to eight hundred dollars more expensive for the base model. So just because you need extended uh, or some kind of active cooling to pay that much more compared to a dev two devices that are for the most part exactly the same price, I don't think that's that that makes sense. Where I will agree with a lot of the reviewers. And once again, this is coming from someone who hasn't touched any of these devices. So I'm speaking from kind of just the specs that we can see is that the 13 inch MacBook pro overall 
with M2 is overall a much worse machine than the MacBook Air performance aside. It's got a worse screen. It's got uh, the same old design. It's got a touch bar. It's got no MagSafe. It's just a worse machine in every other aspect, which to me is a big mistake from Apple. They had an opportunity to make an actual decent machine for people who needed active cooling, but instead what they decided to do was make a bad machine for people who make have need active cooling, make a pretty cool machine for people who just need every an everyday uh, computer, and this really crazy machine in the 14-inch MacBook Pro for people who are, you know, potentially getting subsidized, their computer subsidized by their job or who they're working for or something like that. So there's just this huge gulf between these devices that I can understand why people are a little frustrated. I think if this had a, a slightly updated design with, you know, maybe removing the touch bar and adding MagSafe, I think people would be a lot more positive on this machine. But because pretty much nothing has changed, I think it has a lot of people really scratching their heads as to why this thing exists. So yeah, mm-hmm. to, to make a long story short, I do think it's important that this machine exists just because of the price gulf between the 13-inch MacBook Pro and the 14-inch MacBook Pro. Uh, and I do think that with M2, we might see a bigger difference in sustained performance between the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro than we have seen in the past with M1, just because the M2 is a physically larger chip and the M1 is shipping with a much less significantly powered power brick. But I could be wrong. Who knows? It's just going to be a wait and see at this point. Um, but yeah, how do you feel about it? Do you think that this is potentially just a waste of machine that no one should buy? I 100% think that. 100% think it's a wasted machine that no one should buy. It's it, I, This This even happened when it first came out. We said this was in a very tricky spot, much like you know their iPads, how they have a weird arrangement with their M1-powered iPads there. Yeah. From what I, from what I first thought, and what I've seen from people recommending reviews, if you want a laptop with M2, you should get the MacBook Air when it comes out. If you feel like you need performance from a MacBook, I would say I would agree. Go straight to a MacBook Pro 14-inch. When you, you know, the reason why the MacBook Air is cheaper is because it has a lower spec option. Like we said, you know, if you spec them the same, it comes up to the same price as the MacBook Pro, the M2 MacBook Pro with, you know, active cooling. If you then look at the MacBook Pro 13-inch compared to the 14-inch, it's cheaper, it's that much cheaper because it has lower spec options. If you spec them the same or as similarly as you can, so let's say the entry-level CPU-GPU combo. If you go 16 gigabytes of unified memory, which is the lowest that the 14-inch has, if you go 512 gigabytes of storage, there's only a $300 difference, American. With that $300, you get rid of the touch bar, which should be more than enough. Uh, You get a ProMotion display. You get MagSafe, fast charging. You get more ports with it. So. I know saying just $300 US is like, yeah, to some people, it's not just that. But I would say if you are someone who truly, you know, if you get, if you were to get the MacBook Air with M2 and it's, man, I'm just running into bottlenecks. I don't think the MacBook Pro 
is going to solve that many of the bottlenecks for you. I think at that point, like maybe wait a couple extra months, maybe, you know, maybe wait an extra half a year if you need to, because you would get so much more performance. You would clear so many more bottlenecks if you spent the extra $300 to get the 14 inch and you'd be that much more future proof for anything that any problems that you could run into and you get more ports and you get a better display and you get rid of the touch bar. It's just, I feel like the MacBook Pro, the 13 inch version is simply there to get people into the store. And then you either get, oh, you know, maybe the MacBook Air, the brand new MacBook Air, the redesign is better for you. Or, hey, you know, you think you might run into some performance bottlenecks, just spend a little bit more and get the 14 inch MacBook Pro. I think that's really what it's there for. It's to get people in the door and then to upsell people. That's what I think the purpose of it is. And I think part of why, I think part of why it came out is, you know, the joke, it's the MacBook Pro SE edition. I think they have a lot of these enclosures left over and they just need to get rid of them. Much like they keep on coming out with the iPhone SE. And as you said, it's pretty much based off of the iPhone 6. You know, maybe you can say, okay, the iPhone 7 is what it really is or the iPhone 8. But Apple could definitely afford to update the design of the iPhone SE, still put all those great parts in it and charge a less premium price. But they have, I guess, a lot of iPhone 7s 8 enclosures left over that they want to get rid of. So they keep on pumping out this same old design, just like they probably thought they were going to sell more uh, MacBook Pros with the touch bar but they have a lot left over, so they keep on pumping out the same design. I think they're, you know, when people get their hands on the MacBook Air, I think maybe there will be a bit more of a performance difference between the Air and the 13-inch Pro because it is, you know, as you said, a more powerful chip. It has a bigger battery, and I think Dave2D did some benchmarking, and it does draw more wattage for the CPU and GPU. So it is more powerful. It's a bigger chip. It's more powerful. But I still don't think it's going to be that much more powerful to warrant this old design, giving up MagSafe charging. And it, I, I guess it does come with a bigger brick, but it still doesn't have fast charging the same way that the MacBook Air has fast charging, which I guess might be because it uses USB-C. I'm not sure exactly why. But yeah, I think getting this MacBook Pro, the 13-inch, you would give up too much compared to the MacBook Air, and you would also give up too much compared to the 14-inch MacBook Pro. So, yeah, I don't know. If anyone is thinking of buying one of these, I I would recommend going either up or down to the Air or to the 14-inch MacBook Pro. It's in a very weird spot. Like, compared to those other devices, it has a smaller screen, has worse brightness than the air, has thicker bezels. Like I said, no MagSafe, no fast charging. And because it uses USB-C charging, you technically really have one usable port if you're using the charger that it comes with. It has a worse webcam and an older design that's from 2016. So yeah, I think Apple is just mailing it in at this point. It's like, hey, we have a new chip. We've got a bunch of old enclosures. Let's do what we did with the iPhones and just stick it in and sell it. Um, but yeah, I don't. That's my two cents. Once again, I also don't have my hands on it, so you can take our opinions with a grain of salt. But yeah, it's 
a very strange device in a very strange position. Yeah, I think you can 100% be right about this. Uh, the one thing that does have me worried is I remember when the original M1 MacBook Air came out and reviews came out, a lot of people were saying originally that that device was perfectly fine if you wanted to do 4K renders and it could do all this. And it turned out after time, people realized, oh, you know what? This can't do that. Uh, and there were very significant limitations when you did need to do something for extended periods of time. And I don't really think there's anybody cross-shopping uh, the new M2 MacBook Air and a 14-inch MacBook Pro. I think there's like a $1,000 difference between the base model of that and the base model of the 14-inch MacBook Pro. So I do think this is a situation where the 13-inch MacBook Pro is specifically being compared to the new MacBook Air. And in that case, I although the, the initial reviews are saying this, I do honestly believe, as someone, like you said, hasn't touched the machines, that there is going to be a very real scenario where this 13-inch MacBook Pro is going to significantly outperform uh, the the MacBook Air with M2 simply because there's a fan, there is cooling. If you're someone who does the occasional DaVinci Resolve render, it could be the situation of a MacBook Air M2 taking hours to export versus a half an hour, simply because essentially when you're rendering, you're going to you know, use up your CPU and your GPU cores and the machine's going to get hot. And on a MacBook Air, it's not going to be able to do anything about that, so it's just going to throttle. Whereas on a 13-inch MacBook Pro, it's going to be able to cool it down and keep that sustained performance for an extended period of time. And there is really nothing else in that price range that Apple offers that's going to be able to offer that. So I understand that it's not the shiny, cool new thing, and there's so many downsides to this machine. Believe me, I'm 100% on board with that. But specifically as a work machine, if you can't afford a 14-inch MacBook Pro, I do think there's going to be a lot more... Uh, use case for this machine than is really being considered right now but that completely depends on how the macbook air operates and i wouldn't be surprised if initial reviews say hey the 14 or the new macbook air is great and then six months down the line people are saying you know what this new macbook air does have significant thermal limita limitations that maybe we didn't see originally when this thing came out kind of like we saw with the original my number one reason for buying the 13-inch MacBook Pro is it does not have a notch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's one thing I'm glad that they kept from the old design. Another interesting thing about the 13-inch. So the base model is 256 gigabytes of storage, which is, I think, no one should actually buy that. Mm -hmm. um, that's, yeah. Not really usable with 256 gigabytes of storage, especially if, you know, you're a, a quote-unquote professional that would literally fill up in like half an hour of any sort of editing any sort of work but apple has i guess changed how they manufacture their laptops and so they're using different types of ssd or different sizes of ssds so i guess for last year's model when they had 256 gigabyte options they had two separate ssds that i guess were 100 and 128 gigabytes. So they've now reduced their base SSD size to 256 gigabytes, which technically means that the entry-level MacBook Pro from this year has read and write speeds that are half as fast as the one from last year. Yeah, 
very interesting decision, I would say. But so if SSD read and write speeds are important, which I mean, they are, they, they're always important. Uh, it is the entry level is slower. So if you really are set on buying the 13 inch MacBook Pro with M2, get the 512 gigabyte version. It is a better amount of storage and it is going to be twice as fast with read and write speeds compared to the 256 gigabyte version. All right, on to topic number three, our favorite stories from the past year of podcasting. Now, right off the bat, I'll say my number one favorite story is Framework Laptop. I think last year I said Framework Laptop. This year, Framework Laptop, because they followed through on their promise. You know, last year it was, well, this is what they're promising. This is their idea for their future. And I'm like, I love that idea of the future. This is laptops that are more repairable, that are user repairable, user upgradable. I That's the vision of the future that I want. And the fact that this past year, they came out with their second generation. And it wasn't, oh, well, we've completely changed this and this. And, you know, after this, we're going to stick to it. No, it's the same enclosure, the same everything, except, hey, we have a new motherboard, new CPU. So if all you want to do is upgrade your CPU and motherboard, you can do that. You know, you don't have to use super complicated tools. You can use just a regular old screwdriver, take off the back, switch the motherboard CPU yourself. And there you go. You have a brand new laptop. Favorite story of the year. If I had to say my second favorite, I would say probably the Pixel 6 lineup simply because, okay, we finally have Google Tensor. There's been so, so many years, there's been rumors about Google's going to produce their own system on a chip. Their phones aren't going to be powered by Snapdragon. So I think the fact that we finally got that, one, very glad to see. And then we're actually coming up to the second generation of that coming out, right? We're coming up to the Pixel 7. We already know what they look like. We're coming to Pixel 7, Pixel 7 Pro. So the fact that we're getting the second generation of that, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I'm glad that we saw that from last year. And also, if I had to say one more thing, I'd say Toronto becoming the third largest tech hub in North America. You know, us being in Toronto, being downtown Canadians. I think it's, you know, I always knew it was the best city in Canada. I'm glad that. The rest of the world, the rest of the tech community is seen that we're the best city in, in Canada and, you know, the third best tech city in the world. Or, sorry, the third best tech city in North America. So, those, I guess, were my three top favorite. I have a, a list of other favorite episodes. But, yeah, if I had to say my top three, that's what my top three are. Interested. I think I have an idea of what one of your top three is, but I'm interested to hear what you would say your top three are. Or I guess what they actually are, not what you would say. Whatever you say is true. <laughs> well, it, it's it's funny because I, I really like your your uh, framework laptop uh, mention because early on when you first brought up the framework laptop to me, I was very skeptical, very very skeptical on it. And even on this podcast, I wasn't like the highest one hundred percent one eighty on that. I'm a big fan of what they do, and. I think what they've accomplished and, and if they can continue this, it's just amazing to see. I didn't think this would be possible and it's just awesome to see. Uh, but for me, my number one is a really special product that I ordered and will probably never receive, but it, it. 
is the Valve Steam Deck. Knew it. Uh, I absolutely love this thing. It is the coolest piece of tech that I have seen, especially for the money. And I don't even know how long. Uh, simply because, one, I've said on this podcast before, I love the Switch. I think the Switch is probably my favorite console ever made, especially uh, when compared to recent Nintendo consoles like the Wii U, which wasn't really all that great. And then obviously the the power wars that's going on between Xbox and PlayStation. I love the fact that the Switch is this light handheld machine that you can dock. I, everything about it I think is cool. And Steam Deck does that. Plus it's the fact that it has Steam. And one of my biggest problems with the Switch is that games are so expensive because they never go on sale. Uh, Breath of the Wild came out like six years ago now, and it's still $70. Uh, on Steam, you can there's a Steam sale right on right now where I can get some of my favorite games for less than twenty dollars, and it's just it's amazing that now there's this handheld that can compete with that. I I can't wait to hopefully get my hands on this one day. I hope more companies do this. I recently switched over uh, a lot of my game purchases from Steam to the Epic Game Store simply because uh, I like the fact that Epic Game Store gave its developers more of a share of the purchase, uh, and I would love to see Epic either support Steam Deck officially or potentially make even a competitor device. Uh, but yeah, I, I, that's 100% the coolest device. And, you know, also going in line with what Framework's doing, but to a much lesser degree, but still commendable, is supporting the repair community, which I think is great. And yeah, 100%, that's my number one device. Now, going past that, it's a little bit hard for me because there's a lot of really cool things but nothing that really captured me to that level uh i will say probably my second is not going to be a very popular device but it's something that i just really would love to see uh, more companies kind of try to do even though it's been a failure and that's the microsoft duo uh i know it's it's gotten trashed a lot and it's not necessarily the most popular phone in the world the Duo One was kind of an abject failure in terms of uh, bugginess and just, you know, not living up to what it needed to be. The Duo Two has a little bit of the same issues, but much, much better, despite the fact that I think we both agree we don't like the design changes with the camera on the back. It's just kind of dumb. But overall, as a form factor, and I've said many times, I, I think phones fighting the spec battle, we've gone past that doesn't really matter if you're using a mid-range chip or a flagship chip. Uh, phones are going to perform. They're going to be able to do what you need them to do. It's new form factors and it's new kind of ideas of what a phone is supposed to be. And I think the Duo is, in my opinion, the best foldable in terms of design, in terms of the fact that it doesn't have to have a soft screen that's not durable. And two, it is productivity focused, which with phones becoming more and more of an everyday tool, replacing things like laptops and computers when you're on the go. I think the Duo is just a fantastic device uh, in terms of form factor and design. I don't think we'll ever see another one, so uh, that's unfortunate. But uh, for what they did, I I'm kind of glad that they were able to you know, disrupt the, the cell phone market for a little bit, even though it wasn't all that successful. I'm just glad that they were able to do it. And for my third kind of honorable mention, I'm going to say framework. Uh, like I said, I've made a completely 180 degree turn on it. I am 100% uh, on board with what they're doing. I hope they continue to do what they're doing. And 
I'm just really impressed every time I see them announce something new. Like the new 12th gen boards that are completely backwards compatible with the old computers. And also the fact that you can get chassis to mount your old motherboard and turn it into a desktop and 3D print whatever you need to 3D print. Like It's just unheard of that a company would do this. And despite the fact that we've seen so many cool stuff like the uh, M1 Max and M1 Ultra from Apple and then, you know, the, this new MacBook Air, which is also cool. I don't think what they're doing is on the level of framework in terms of redefining the the computer market in terms of repairability and customizability, uh, which I think is far more important than than what Apple's doing right now, despite the fact that I think what Apple's doing is quite cool as well. But yeah, I, yeah. I think that rounds it up for me. Yeah, I think on my, you know, on my honorable mentions list, I have the M1 Pro Max Ultra. The fact that they're producing their own SOCs, I think is, you know, a pretty big deal. And when they first came out with their M1 products, they were, you know, everyone said they were revolutionary. There's a big performance gain when you compare it to their Intel stuff. So I like the fact that they did that. And I think the fact that Apple did it kind of helped bolster Google doing it, mm-hmm. and I think it's only going to help. It's only going to help more companies kind of look to do that on their own. You know, when you look at Samsung and Exynos, um, I have the Mustang Mach E being named the king of EVs. Mm-hmm. I think that was a big deal. You know, for quite some time, you've kind of made fun of how Tesla has quality control issues and this and that. And I think the fact that people are actually saying like, "Oh, you know, there is competition for Tesla out there." It's not only one ev company out there there's there's actually more companies close to the top or at the top than you would expect i think that's another good story the sony xperia one mark three and four came out within the past year of the podcast and you know those are two they're pretty much the same phone they the exact same enclosure just a new chip inside and i think the four has a newer camera new uh telescope and lens enthusiast android smartphones even though overpriced but enthusiast phones nonetheless and it's good to see those sort of products still being produced you know not everything is copy an iphone with their you know their design with the removing of headphone jacks with the removing of led flashes you know i don't think iphone ever did but anyways an enthusiast android smartphone and my last honorable mention is Nothing Ear One, which actually launched July 31st. Mm. Um, so that launched within the last year of the podcast. They did fairly well for themselves, and now they're coming out with their phone. So I would assume, I don't think there's an official release date for the Nothing Phone One. I would assume it would come around July 31st. Now, the 31st is a Sunday. So, yeah. Sunday, not a popular day to launch smartphones. I don't think it's going to come out on the 31st. Maybe on the 29th, which is a Friday, maybe on August 5th, which is the following Friday. But yeah, Nothing Phone 1 should be coming out soon. And shout out to Nothing and actually launching products. Yeah. Good for them. (laughs) But yeah, I think there's a lot of developments and there's been so much that happens when you look at, you know, like the Activision Blizzard deal with Xbox and there's been so many things that happened over the past year. It's kind of hard to say, okay, what are your absolute favorites? I think anything that we talked about could make this list, but yeah, yeah, pretty eventful year. Looking forward to this next year of podcasting. Yeah, same. 
So one thing that we talked about since the beginning of the podcast is uh, Disney Plus. And, you know, we got mm-hmm. to see it from its inception and we got to talk about all of the things that we expected and hoped it would be in terms of competing with Netflix. And obviously Netflix has struggled with that competition. But I'm curious. We were really hopeful uh, about all the cool new projects that we're going to make. We've seen Obi-Wan. We've seen Boba Fett. We've seen a lot of their Marvel projects specifically for Disney Plus. Do you think Disney Plus has lived up to the hype that they originally kind of laid out? And do you think that they are now the number one streaming service overall because of this content? Or maybe have they dropped the ball a bit? I definitely think they've lived up to it. Um, I don't know necessarily if they're number one, just like numbers wise. I'm not sure if they are. I think Netflix still has more subscribers. Yeah, I'm sure. But in terms of momentum and what they're doing, definitely Disney plus. Now I say that before the final two episodes of stranger things season four comes out, or I guess the entire series comes out. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Not to say that Netflix isn't still doing stuff. They definitely are still doing things that, you know, are getting people excited, but I'd say just the sheer volume and consistency that Disney plus has, I think, they are going to be, I think they're going to be at the top. Nice. Very, I think they're going to be at the top very soon. And I think for the long haul, they are. When you look at, as you mentioned, you know, Star Wars, when you look at Marvel, not to mention all of their actual like Disney IP, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to compete with that. No matter what Netflix comes up with, you can't come up with a Star Wars. Like that's a, like the Star Wars is a once in a gen, not even a generation, once in a century kind kind of, uh, I guess, creation. Yeah. So competing with Star Wars by itself is tough. Then competing with the Marvel Cinematic Universe is tough. Then competing with all of Disney's, you know, their Pixar stuff and just a regular animated series with, you know, Toy Story with minions with all like it's yeah they have so much intellectual property that i think it would be hard for them i think yeah they would very seriously have to mess up in order to not be the number one streaming service yeah yeah take it easy everyone in podcast land catch you in the next episode